So we're going to look today at after the resurrection. What is it that Jesus was saying to his disciples on the days after he rose from the dead? Wouldn't it be awesome to just been a part of all of those conversations? I mean, we get a glimpse of it, but to be there and to partake in it and, and see everything that they saw and hear everything that they heard, that would be marvelous. That would be amazing. But with what we have, what God has already graced us with, it is already good. It is already a, a, a great gift of His kindness to us. And it's a word that helps us grow. A word that helps us be launched and to move and, and to move forward in, in, in the ways that God has told us to. Um, imagine, if you will, the importance, the, the, the significance of last words. Imagine, if you will, you know that you are about to depart and while the relationship with you is still going to be available to the person, they're never ever going to see your face again. Think about what you would, to each person that comes into your mind, what would you say to them? If that was where it was at, if that was the way things were going to be left, what would you say to them? You've probably thought of things that you would say to friends. You know, those that you have connection with. And, and as they're coming into to view, you know, there may be conversations you need to have. There may be men's that need to be made. Uh, who knows what could come into play? Uh, whenever you think about your coworkers, there may be things you may say, well, uh, tomorrow's retirement. I will never walk in this door again. This is the stuff you need to take care of. And uh, that may be your last words there. That and ta-ta-ta, see you later. Well, not really. Uh, but that kind of thing. To neighbors, you might say one thing. To church family, you might say another. But to those of your close relation, those of your blood, those that are your children and, and your siblings and your spouses, what would you say to them? What would be the words? We would probably want to tell them and let them know how much we love them, how much we have grown with them, how much we have Love that time with them. But we'd also want to give them something. Where do you go from here? What do you do now? What is there to be done? What is What do you need to have as you depart and I depart from you? This is what we're looking at when we look at the words of Jesus after the resurrection. He is going to be spending 40 days with them after rising from the grave, after making His appearance known to them. He's going to spend 40 days with them. And then He's going to ascend into heaven. And then 10 days later, He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And you see that first day of Pentecost, the birth of the early church. And you may wonder, what is Jesus saying? And, and when we look at Him, we see, wow, now we know why these words are so held dear by disciples through the age. Because we, we see the significance this is some of the last things that Jesus said. It doesn't mean it's greater than anything He said before, but it, the significance of it, it grips us because we know where He is in this moment. Thinking about last words. I remember the last words my grandmother ever said to me. 
Now, I'm not trying to pull on heartstrings or anything like that today, but it, it, the, the, the mark that it left on me was immense. You see, my grandmother, who was the valedictorian of her high school, who was the bookkeeper for her husband, my grandfather's um, plumbing business, also worked a second job at a factory, and on the 10 days before she was going to retire, she fell down and hit her head and uh, was in a coma for 10 days. And then she came out of it. But she was never the same. Someone who was very sharp, now communicated more like a third grader. And I could see it being frustrating and devastating for her and trying to show that and being caught up and just not having the words to say. And then as her health deteriorated, she ended up not really going into a coma, but almost catatonic. Not really able to say anything, just kind of staring off into space. And my grandfather, loving as he is, over 50 plus years of marriage, was every day, every morning, he was at the nursing home with her. And I came to visit one day when I was, ah, just had finished college. And... Um, I was sitting with her, and Grandpa said, hey, I've got to go get something from the room and take care of something real quick. Can you sit and watch her? I was like, well, of course. I'll I'll sit with her. And I just sat with her and just telling her about what was going on. And just for some weird God-given snippet, she woke up, looked directly at me, and she says, I want you to know, no matter what, I am proud of you. And the man you have become and the man you're becoming, don't walk away from it. And just as if it was there one minute and gone the next, that was it. Those are the last words my my grandmother ever shared with me. Significant, right? But those words that I'm proud of who you've become and who you're becoming and don't step away from it, that seared into my brain about, look, There is an element of of walking and growing and living that should not ever be lost. And it's a part of our life. It's a part of the fabric of our being. And as we're about to look at this text today in the book of Matthew, page two, I mean, page 886 in the Pew Bible, uh, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, we're going to look at something that God charges His people to do. And it's to continue Where you have left off, but in a new whole way. Now you have this realization that I am who I say I am, that I do what I say I do, that what I've said and spoken, it is complete and good. Now do not depart from it. This is the heartbeat behind these words. And as we're going to be launching into this new series, we're going to talk about those aspects. What does it mean to continue on that path? What does it mean to grow with the Lord? What does it mean to grow together? with the Lord. As I share with the, the, the kids, that verse from Second Peter 3.18, it says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I share with them that that's a part of our life and our being, that, that this growth, when we think about what growing is, it's meant to be natural, that it happens, if, if growing is not taking place where it's supposed to take place, something unhealthy is going on. 
But when we see it growing, we're like, well, that's the way things are supposed to do. It's volitional when it comes to the, the walk of with God. It's volitional when we talk about our physical life as well. You may have been told before to grow up. Any of you ever heard that phrase? I heard it many times. And that's a good thing, especially for young men and women. You know, I, I don't know what it's like to live the life of a young woman. I know that I want to. Um, but I do know what it's like to be a, a young man and to grow from an infant and, and toddler, although I don't remember those days, but to grow from a toddler to a, a young child, a boy, and, and then from boy into the awkwardness of adolescence, and then from adolescence into that weird phrase of time we call guy world, where you have to say, all right, do I want to stay and retain as a, as a teenager, or do I want to grow into a man, and then leaving guy world and becoming a man, and the stages of being a man, whenever you finish uh, your college or whatever part of education or, or you, you go to work or you get married and, and maybe an amalgamation of both and you have children, all these stages of life. And finally noting what it's like to have a teenager and I will neither say good or bad about that. I've been around teenagers my whole life. Well, pretty much my whole life. Most of my ministry was in that. But having one as a daughter is is, is unique. But there's a volitional aspect to it. When it comes to following Jesus, we're going to see there's an irresistible aspect to it because it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to Him and and we respond to His offer of grace. And then we live that out. But we see it's not only that, but it's transformational. We're meant to change. And we're meant to see this is worshipful. When I think about what it looks like to be grown up as a disciple, we talked about it this morning. Part of it is having a heart for Jesus that loves Him as He loves us and out of that overflow loves others. Part of it is having a knowledge of the Scripture. Part of it is being sent to the world and realizing our mission. Part of it is being involved with a community that holds us accountable, that grows us. These are all aspects of this life. But where does it start? What's the, what's the launching point from the words of Jesus that show us how essential and good this is? Let's stand with me and, and, and honor God in the reading of His Word in Matthew chapter 28. And let's see what He says in these last words that's telling them to continue and grow forward together. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped. But some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, today this is your word. May we remember where it came from, who it's about, and why it is so good for our life. Help us to hear from you, see you, know you, respond to you, and live for you. Because you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you're being seated, I always want to talk about these questions that people have for the Bible. And when we're looking at Matthew 28, especially when you look at 16-20, through 20, you may say, Another message from the Great Commission. Really? I, you, you, I, I know what it's like to have heard this text and I'll automatically say, I've heard that text so many times, 
I can just automatically almost quote it for myself. And there's just no way anybody's going to give you something new. And I want to tell you, you are correct, sir. I can't give you something new that is different from what God's Word has said, but hopefully I can present it in a way that refreshes us and reminds us that it doesn't matter if it's new, it's still good and daily needed for us. When we read it again and again, and we, we take it in, we say, God, thank you for it. But to understand the Bible, sometimes we've got to see and stop and say, what is it telling us? What does it say? Let me read it for myself and not get so high on my horse or exalting of self that I think I've already been there, done that. When we go back to God's Word, it shows us how good it is to us and we recognize His authority that there's never a day where we've gotten enough of it. There's never a day where it can't transform us again, even reading what we've already read before. But still, we need to see what it says and what it means as we look at the the author and the audience and the aim. We've talked about the book of Matthew over the last couple weeks when we were doing the Hoosier One series and looking at the calling of Jesus upon His disciples. But nevertheless, as we look at it, we see that Matthew, who was once this tax collector, is is writing this book to uh, the the, uh, particularly Jewish audience because he's making lots of Jewish references about Jewish history, about Jewish prophecy, about Jesus as a Jewish Messiah fulfilling the Jewish law. It's a, it's a really Jewish book. But it's good for the entire world, not just for Jewish re- recipients. And he wrote this book around uh, the mid-50s to mid-60s AD, so within 15 to 20 years of Christ. So this, once again, puts it in within a lifetime of those first generation of believers, within the, the last decades of right after Jesus' resurrection. So they better be sure about what they're saying, because there were other witnesses that could point back and say, yeah, no, you got that wrong, bro. But in its entirety, its whole aim is to say, Jesus is indeed the promised one provided. He's the promised one provided to us. And then as we look at that, we begin seeing how it applies. We're going to look directly at how this text applies. But we need us to be prepared when we open the Bible. I think this is the key so that you don't get to the place of, well, I've already read that, done that, been there. It's coming back to say, what is God saying and will I trust it? today what is it telling me about him and what i need in this moment in following him what i what's my next step where am i growing with god what is my continuation with him and will i trust it and today our aim as we look at this particular text is to see that growing as a follower of jesus it begins with recognizing His authority overall. If we're really going to grow together as a church, growing in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, it's going to first come with recognizing that He is, no question, the ultimate authority. He is Lord of all. And I'm not just deriving that out of my own head. This is how Jesus begins this conversation Famous last words on the mountain in Galilee. Now, this is not the words he said directly before he ascended, by the way. I know that sometimes we quote this and say, then he ascended to heaven. No, that's Acts 1, 
verse 8. We'll be getting to that next week. But this is a part of that journey. This is a part of those 40 days that while they were with Jesus, they departed Jerusalem and went to Galilee to learn from Him, only to return back to Jerusalem and to be launched in that mission to the very ones who called for His crucifixion. But here He is with them in Galilee. And as they approach Him, first of all, listening to what He had told them, it says that they had traveled to Galilee to the mountain where who had directed them? Jesus. They listened to His authority and, and, and what He has said, and they said, okay, we better do what Jesus said. I mean, the guy just got out from the grave. It's probably a good idea for us to listen to Him. And it says, when they saw Him, something unique happens. They worshipped Him. Now, that is a big, big statement that sometimes we just read over and think, That is not a big deal. Okay, we recognize, yeah, duh, I'm supposed to worship Jesus. That's what I've been told my whole life when I come to church. But for people that were Jewish men raised with the recognition that there is only one God, one Lord, and you are to worship Him alone, to bow down to Jesus means they recognize He is that one. That is significant. That is not to be missed. He's not just a cool guy. He's not just the miracle guy. He's not just the the neat teaching guy. He's God. And they worshipped Him. And yet, out of the eleven, there were still some that doubted. Now, Matthew doesn't point fingers at who was doubting. Some have speculated that this was Thomas. It doesn't mean it was Thomas, but some have speculated this as such. Some have pointed out, well, it couldn't have been Judas Iscariot because, well, he already, you know, out of the picture. But it doesn't matter who it is. What it teaches me as we look at this is how we can bend the knee in one moment and worship Jesus and say, all hell Jesus' name. And yet, in our heart, instead of saying, I surrender all, we're saying, I surrender somewhat. I surrender almost. I I don't know if He really has all authority over my life. Maybe I should just get like an in-between me. Like I'm not, I'm like almost there, but I'm not really there. It it reminds us that that's an absolute possible place to be. It's a devastating place to be. It's a damaging and not condoned place to be. But it can be the reality of our lives. But they worship Jesus, which was only proper for them as they recognized that, just as Matthew is writing here, that He is... The promised one. He is the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the accomplishment of every single prophecy. And He is the provision for sin. In your sermon notes that are in the bulletin, I'm sorry I didn't print out the discussion guides for the connection groups. I'll take that on myself. That's a part of me just forgetting to do it. But in your notes, I put that first question, what causes disciples to worship Jesus? Think about that. What causes you to worship Jesus? I mean, most of us in this room would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. What causes you to worship Him? 
What is that movement that says, I bend the knee to elevate Jesus' name? Some people wonder what worship is in the first place. Just in case you don't know, worship, I believe the best explanation that we can give, it's the proper response of man to the potent revelation of God. That's the best way I can summarize it when we talk about Christian worship. It's the proper response of man to the potent revelation of God, to how powerful it is. So let's talk about one of the, some of the reasons that they would worship Jesus. They, they would worship, first of all, the, His person, who He is. That he's actually a real person that really lived, really died, really was buried, really rose again, and was really there with them. He wasn't just a ghost among them. He was really a person. And they recognized, one, his identity as the Son of Man, that, that he came as God to be with us and take on the flesh. As John 1.14 says, and, and, and as the Son of Man, He served men. In fact, He would say that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So they saw that in His identity, and, and perhaps that's a part of why you worship Him today. It's a part of His person. You see, this Jesus serves us. He came down to be with us. Why would I not worship Him? But not only His identity as the Son of Man, but His divinity as the Son of God. That that we don't make the mistake of saying He's just the dude in the bathrobe. He's just an ancient time Lebowski. That's not who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the Holy One, the perfect and sinless One, the righteous in everything He does One. That should cause a proper response to His potent revelation. Maybe we, we worship Jesus because we've read through the Bible and, and we get to the Gospels and we see His preaching. There were people that honored Jesus because of His preaching. They saw His authority that, that He didn't just speak like, oh, well, this says this and this says this and that kind of thing. No, He taught as one having authority. Like the very power and, and, and Word of God was in Him. And you know what? It was. It is. But not only his, his authority in his preaching, but his fulfillment. When you read through the, the Sermon on the Mount, from the Gospel of Matthew, there's some unique statements that I love about Jesus that are like, when we read through them, we're kind of like, oh, that's kind of pretty. All right, da 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 da. But you know, he would talk about the law. And, and you know, you've heard, do not kill. You've heard, do not adult, commit adultery. You've heard, do not commit false testimony. And then you follow it, but I say to you. Now, just think about that. I, I, I think I've shared this before. Imagine if I came in here and I said, hey, you've heard that the Bible says this, but I say to you, as in, but there's something more. But there's not a fulfillment. But that is insufficient. I should be ran out the door, tail between my legs, booking out of town. If that ever happens, that should be the reaction of the church. But Jesus would say it, and He meant it because He was the absolute fulfillment. It was not wrong when He said it, whenever He would say, this is what the law says, but I say to you, because I am not only the authority, I am the fulfillment. It's not wrong, it's insufficient without Me. That would be a reason for worshiping Jesus, but even that's not all that's there. Perhaps you worship because of the preeminence of Jesus. 
You see His power and His supremacy over miracles. Taking over nature. Taking care over the physical realities of this world and bending them to His will. Maybe it's because of the signs. The seven signs you see in the book of John that point to His divinity. That point to His preeminence. It's saying, this is why you can know that Jesus is indeed who He says He is. Maybe part of the reason that you worship Jesus is not just His personhood or His preaching or His preeminence. Maybe it's His pity. I'm sometimes called up by that. and It's different in different times of seasons. You've heard me say today, God, I'm just so overwhelmed that You loved and love me. I'm so undeserved of that. Now, I know no one wants people to take pity on them, but it's a good thing that Jesus takes pity on us. Because all of us are charity cases. When Jesus said this, and I'm not wrong in saying He had pity, it it tells us that He had compassion on us because He saw us as sheep without a shepherd. That's beautiful poetic language, but sometimes we don't get that. A sheep without a shepherd means it was anyone's game to chop that sucker up, have a leg of lamb, and have a fine dining experience. A sheep without a shepherd is a sheep to the slaughter. That's why Jesus had compassion on us, because that's who we were. And He has pity. And He even said of Himself, I am the good shepherd, that out of my compassion for you, I lay down my life for you. Wow, that is mind-boggling love that comes from God. Perhaps the worship of Jesus as disciples is not only those things, but it's also the provision found in Jesus. Once again, last week we celebrated the crucifixion that Jesus indeed paid it all. The book of Matthew spends quite a few chapters going through the details of what Jesus faced for our sin. I would encourage you, if you did not do it before Easter, to go back. Read chapters 26 to 27 before you get to 28. You'll realize why 28 is such good, awesome news. Because you'll see the crucifixion in all of its brutality, but then you'll also see the atonement in all of its beauty. That you'll see why it was necessary that Jesus would willingly lay down his life of his own initiative and make no mistake, he said that's what he does, that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and this is why my Father loves me. Perhaps one of the reasons we worship Jesus is not only these things, but it's it's the power of Jesus that we see in the resurrection. Wow! I mean, death was, it was there. And then it wasn't. It was once brutal and it had its sting. And now we say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, oh, sin, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection. Maybe it's the proclamation of Jesus. The good news. I love that's how the book of Mark begins. It's celebration of Jesus. It says, then Jesus began proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That good news is what we call the gospel. What we try to talk about every week, that there is a God who is holy, and He is righteous in all of His judgment, and He is good. But our sins are not so much. 
that the offense of it is a rebellion against righteousness, righteousness, against holiness, against His justice. And yet in that, God gives grace. That He says, I will take the penalty for you. Knowing that you could never do anything on your own to achieve righteousness, to work it out. He did it for us by being the sufficient God-man, the Son of Man and the Son of God who went to the cross so that we could be redeemed. That is good news. And all of these, not just one of them, all of these are reasons that worship is the proper response of man to the potent revelation of God. When we see all these, how could we not worship? How could we not have a song on our lips? How could we not have a desire to be obedient? And I'm not trying to slam anybody. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want to be reminding us that there's a reason we can sing. There's a reason we can praise. Because Jesus is good for it. In fact, He's the only one. And here the disciples, they they gathered and they worshiped. We don't know what that looked like. We don't know if they were making up songs on the spot. We don't know what it looked like if they were just bowing and praying. If they were just talking to Him. If they were saying, God, I I owe it all to You and, and I dedicate this life. I am Your living sacrifice. We don't know what the content was. But we can be sure it was worship. Even though there were some that doubted, Jesus was being worshipped in that moment. But that wasn't the only thing that was going on. Jesus in this moment, He clarifies something about Himself. Just in case we have any misgivings about like, well, they did that, but maybe Jesus was like, I don't know what you guys are doing. This is too much. Sorry, I'm overwhelmed. You shouldn't reward me. That kind of thing. You shouldn't honor me like that. Get up. Don't do that. No, Jesus clarifies. So what does Jesus clarify about Himself? He says to them, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. We're going to talk about that all authority. What does that mean? Well, He's clarifying one thing, that He is indeed Lord of all, not just Lord of some. Remember, when this is the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And this message that Jesus is speaking to His disciples that would be recorded to other disciples is a message to Jewish believers from their Jewish Messiah recorded in a book to prove the fulfillment of the Jewish Scriptures. And yet, Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. In other words, my kingdom is not just going to be limited to a Jewish people. My authority is not just for a Jewish people. And also, once again, that's another reason most of us in this room better sing. That we ought to be so grateful because Jesus did not limit His kingdom to just one nation only, but to the nations. But I want you to think about how striking this is for these disciples, all of them Jewish. For Jesus to say to them, all authority is on Me. Heaven and earth. And now in that authority, I'm sending you out to all nations. That don't keep this to yourself. I am the Lord and Savior available to all. So what does that mean? 
As Jesus clarifies that He is Lord of all, it means that Jesus has the authority. He is the authority over all. The book of Matthew gives us this glimpse, building up and, and escalating to this moment that when we see these words, we, we don't need to just read over them and think, yeah, okay, He's got authority over it all. That's, that's great. But think about how the book of Matthew in itself, not to mention the other three Gospels, has appointed to this authority. He has all authority over nature and nations. That, once again, He's the one that bent nature to His will. Storm! You're scaring all my boys in the boat! Shut up! And it was. There's no bread! And it was. He bent the will of nature. Oh, got to get across this lake. Maybe I'll just walk. It bent to his will. And he's saying not only is that, but the nations, I have authority over them. That's why I'm sending you to them. Many times Jesus in His ministry would go to peoples that even His closest companions felt uncomfortable talking to. He would talk to a Syrophoenician woman. People whose heritage traced their way back to the people of Jezebel. He would demonstrate grace. He, He would help a Roman centurion and just speak and the person's servant was healed. He had authority over all nature and nations. He, had a, he has authority over all disease and demons. Throughout the Gospels, they're replete with these moments of, of Jesus healing those who were blind and needing able to, being able to see and, and, and deaf and needing to hear and, and mute and could not speak and, and, and lame and could not walk and, and dead. <laughs> could not live. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I've got dominion there too. The Gospels are telling us what this authority looks like. When we go back and we don't just stop it and pull out a snippet of 28, but we see everything of 21 through 27 going into 28, we see how this all authority, it is, it is huge. We see that the demonic and the supernatural pleading with Jesus Please don't destroy us. Please, please just let us go to the pigs. We'll drown ourselves, but just let us go. Oh yeah, Jesus has authority. We see Jesus with His authority uh, against sin and death with the, the man that was laid down before Him. We talked a couple weeks ago. The first thing He tells them is, your sins are forgiven. Before he ever heals him, he tells them that. And, but he gives the sign that this is the reason you know it's taking place. Get up and walk. For Lazarus, he tells him to come out. All authority includes nature and nations, disease and demons, sin and death. And all authority includes our lives. Lest we be mistaken. Jesus is telling the disciples this. Hey, all you guys... All authority is in me, not you. All authority is in me, not you. Something that the church 
would have to learn over and over again in the book of Acts. And it's something the church has to learn over and over again even today. That all authority includes our lives. But also, all authority, it includes every other life. That's why Jesus told us to go and tell them. It's not just the ones in this room, it's the ones outside it. All authority. Jesus' authority is, Lord, is sufficient. What we see here is when He tells them to go, He gives them this reason behind it, that my authority is sufficient for this commissioning, for this launching, for this continuation. I've heard it said that the Great Commission is never to be considered just the great suggestion. No, it's a command. The, the Great Commission isn't just the great opinion. No, it's God's authority. The Great Commission isn't the great man-made operation. This is not something that we've organized by our own intellect and tried to customize into a neat fit package and program. No, it's a life. It's a, it's a demonstration of worship. It's a recognition of God's authority. And it is all the fuel that we need. If God's authority, saying all authority in heaven and on earth is in me, now go. If that phrase, all authority is in Jesus, isn't enough, nothing ever will be. Do we realize that? If that is not enough, nothing ever will be. There will never be an initiative, there will never be an octane high enough to get us off of our keisters to do what God has called us to do. It just won't be. And if it, there is something, we'll take all the credit for ourselves as if we did something great. But when we see that Jesus is the Lord of all and that authority is over all and it's sufficient for all, then we'll understand it's Jesus speaking His Word to us that compels us to go. It's His worth that is there that is the fuel for our mission. It's His worship that is our goal. It's His work that gives us and leads us with confidence to say, I'm doing this because Jesus sent me. And you know what? He has all authority. My growth, it's about God's authority. My giving, it's about God's authority. My going, it's about God's authority. My gratitude, it's about God's authority. And I live that out in confidence. And I follow it in obedience. Because it's all the fuel we'll ever need. We talk about growing and we do all kinds of things to try to make things grow. You want your grass to grow, you'll call a company to come out and spray fertilizer and whatever else to, to aerate it and make it all beautiful so that it grow, grows. We, we try to grow and get gains ourselves. We'll go work out. We'll, we'll get out and get some exercise. We'll take vitamins and all kinds of things. We'll do the best to make ourselves grow in the ways we want to. How do we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? We recognize the one who has all authority says, I love you. I love you more than you will ever, ever know. And I've drawn you into that. Now live knowing my love and letting that love overflow to others. And recognize my authority. That's an authority that says my love is complete. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today I pray that as we come to this moment of response, as we come to this moment, we recognize that you are the living King Messiah. 
who rules over all. That Jesus, today, we would come to a place where we bend the knee, recognizing your authority, but we lift up our voices, recognizing your love, and we worship. Because seeing you for all that you are, that is the proper response of man to your potent revelation. It's so good to know you. And it's so gifted that you made yourself known to us. But you did not do it with a, in a purposeless way. That you made this known to us so that we would make it known to others. So God, whatever kind of response needs to take place in this church, on this Sunday in 2019, Lord, have your way because you have the authority. You make the direction. And just as the disciples followed you towards that mountain, whatever you say to your people to do right now, Lord, help us to do it as we respond to you and your authority in worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be down.